0: Hello and welcome back to the One Take Show podcast. In this episode, we are in conversation with Mr. Harish Natarajan. Harish is the Head of Economic Analysis at AKE International. He is a senior economist and a geopolitical research professional and one of the most celebrated debaters across the world. Recently, he participated in the third Grand Challenge by IBM where he debated an AI machine, an AI robot and actually won the competition. So obviously I had to have a conversation with Harish whereas I wanted to know what was the experience, what got him into debating and what does he see the current debating scene as and joining me in this conversation to really enrich this conversation in one way or the other is Patya Singh from the debate and discussion committee of RMLNLU. So if you like this episode which I'm 100% sure you will, please make sure you like, share and subscribe to the channel. If you have any suggestions or feedbacks, Write them down in the comment section. I would love to read them. And, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, let's start the podcast.
1: You want something? Go get it. Period.
0: Three, two, and one. Hello, Harish. Welcome to the One Take Show. And joining us is Adipatya. We both of us, as not just the students of RML, not just as debaters, but I think as students who have observed your brilliance unfold and all the amazing things that you've done over such a... Wonderful, wonderful career. I think we are really excited. I personally am sort of nervous to have this conversation. <laughs> but yeah, very excited. Thank you so much for taking time off your busy schedule and joining us for this conversation.
1: Yeah, it's an absolute pleasure from my perspective. i hope to have a great conversation.
0: Absolutely. And thank you so much, Adi for joining me. I am sure like your presence in this episode is going to make this very purposeful for the debaters as well.
2: Yeah, yeah, I'll try to do that. Thanks a lot, Costa, for having Harish, Thanks.
0: perfect so Harish my first question to you obviously as a conceptual beginning for any episode my attempt is to draw as much inspiration as possible from the personal experiences of my guests and I think you have had a monumental experience when it comes to debating and my question is not just limited to or restricted to debating but from your perspective of perhaps getting into that academic world and drifting towards Debating as an activity. How did that uh, all of this start and how did you actually maneuver your way into this world?
1: Yeah, so for me, I started debating a little bit when I was in high school, but never a huge amount. And the reason I started debating was, in some ways, I'm sure something everyone's familiar with, which is my parents made me, and that they were like, you need to do an extracurricular activity. And I was like, oh, do I really have to? But, you know, there was a debating class. It was right after mm-hmm. school ended. A few of my friends went. So I was like, okay. I'll Mm -hmm. do this. And what surprised me, and I think this is many people's experience. You kind of go and go, fine, I'll do it. But
0: -hmm. then
1: you really end up loving it. And that happened pretty quickly for me because the first time I got up to speak, and this was just in a room of 20 people, it was just such a fun experience. I wasn't good at it per se, but at the time I thought I was pretty good at it. And you start getting more, you care about it more and more. You care about the discussion of ideas, responding to other people's ideas, how you communicate in the most effective way to entertain or inform an audience. And that's what brought me more into debating. But the difficulty for me, and I guess this makes me different than many other debaters, is when I moved to my undergrad, I actually didn't do much debating at all. These were three years at Oxford where enjoyed the idea of debating, but I wasn't particularly good at it. I didn't feel the need to put the time in. There were other things I found interesting. And it was only when I started my postgraduate degree and had a few friends again who were debating that I started getting back into it. And what happened to me is I, I then progressed very quickly that I had done those years at school, had been okay, been at Oxford, done okay-ish, but really wasn't getting better. It was the first time I started putting effort in. And it became a major part of what I was doing at university as a master's student. I had far more time than I did as an undergrad. It just brought me further and further in. And then just the thrill of I'm seeing myself get better. And there's this external metric of validation, which is how well are you doing on speaker taps? So how, how many speakers are better than you? How, or you're better than how many speakers? How are you doing at these tournaments? And then it's just, well, I've gone this far. Can I become better? And then I've gone this far, can I become better? And that became the process for me and kept me involved in debating and kept me speaking debating for about a decade or so.
0: I mean, from a different perspective also, I think that principle is in itself very inspiring for any professional. I think, has this principle helped you in other aspects of your professional life as well? The idea of getting better with every stage?
1: Yes. So I think there's a caveat to this, which is, I actually don't think I get better or anyone just gets better at every single stage. If you compare yourself one month to the next, you may have improved, but it might be you it might just not be perceptible um, over the space of a year and a half. There may be. But actually, it's our progress is never really linear. It's that we can be pretty mediocre, not really improving, or we could be good and not really improve. And then something clicks or we realize something we didn't before, something someone told us which didn't really make sense now makes sense and you improve a great amount. And actually that's helped me a lot professionally. It is the non-linear nature of improvement. That may be a work that I am formerly a, economic, a consultant, an economic analyst I run the team in London. But one thing which I realized is, you know, there will be months where you're not gonna learn a great deal more than you did before. That you won't be that much better three months down the road than you were three months before. But that doesn't mean a huge amount because that's not the way improvement really works. Don't expect to improve from day to day. You can try to, but to me, it's just the idea that over time, you will become a lot better at many things, particularly if you both work hard at something. And for me, if you're self-critical, if you ask yourself, Mm -hmm. how can I improve? Because I think in some ways, we're not necessarily our best teachers, but we're definitely the best people at being able to keep ourselves honest. Because we're the ones who put the most effort into us in almost any single Mm -hmm. environment we're going to be in. So it's always for me asking whether you win, whether you lose, whether you did something well, how would I do it better the next time? And if other people Mm -hmm. are also giving you feedback, that can certainly help as well.
0: Right. Perfect. And I think before we started having this uh, conversation recorded, uh, I and Adipati were talking about something very interesting, your IBA AI debate and this entire Wonderful, wonderful scenario that took place. We decided to sort of introduce that into the conversation, give a context to our viewers, but then we found ourselves limited not just with the skills, information, but also with the capability of even talking about it. So when we when we have such an such a monumental event that is covered by media at such a large scale, it's circulated, it's talked about, it becomes sort of a limelight and is also something that I was very excited to talk to you about. Mm. What was this entire experience like for you? And
1: what exactly, how did it unfold in your perspective? Yes, I mean, quite a lot to say about it, actually. There's so many different angles goals to take this in. One thing I'll just say to begin with, which is, for all the years I've done debating, it's without a doubt, the most high-profile debate I've ever done. Um, it's not the achievement I'm most proud about, but I do think it is in some ways, one of the most interesting things which I've been involved in, just because of what seems to signify. And to me, what was the most interesting part of it to me was how the event and the pageantry around it was so different than my actual experience when I'm on stage. And what I mean by that is this was two and a bit years ago. So flown to San Francisco, go to this auditorium and there's maybe a thousand different computers and you get on stage. And there's about fifteen different computers and a bunch of IBM technicians typing away, uh, giant screens behind you. And then there is Project Debater, which is in, in form a model it. It is a like two thousand and one this giant slab, which is like nothing I've ever seen before. It's probably like seven foot tall. You're taking photos with it, and everything about that event with the cameras pointing, with the number of people in the audience, with the environment of it was so alien from any other debate I'd ever done but then there's that moment when you're brought you're brought backstage and I'm given the motion and then everything just seems like a normal debate to me which is about a minute of going what's this debate about what do I need to say and actually the next 15 minutes was just thinking as I would to any normal debate and you get up on stage and you hear the first few lines from IBM's project debate, which are distinctly non-human. Uh, it's something like, welcome to the future. But then you just hear arguments. And then I'm just thinking, how do I respond to those arguments? So the second I'm actually in the debate or in the preparation for the debate, which I'd done thousands of times before and actually in the debate, which i have done maybe thousands of times before as well the oddity of the experience vanished. And to me, when I reflect on that, that was quite interesting because this is such an alien experience that AI debating is just so weird, Mm -hmm. but when you're there, when you're actually doing it, it isn't that different. And that I think may or may not be a general comment we can make about how we work with AI, but I think we often Mm -hmm. get very used to what we're doing. Right, right. And uh, just
0: a tad bit of a follow-up here. Do you think that this thing uh, of AI debating and sort of developing this culture where we actually acknowledge the fact that this idea of cognitive uh, sort of engagement with AI, will this become a norm? Something that perhaps academics or the universities will pick up or the debating societies will pick up in the future? Mm.
1: So I guess there's two parts of this, which is maybe just to start being a bit cynical, which is Project deba- a debating machine, per se, it's not a particularly profitable venture. There's clearly people who are interested in it, but it really isn't the future of IBM there. What is really powerful, though, is what Project Debate is able to do. Is It has 400 million articles, 10 billion sentences. I don't know how many lifetimes it would take to read 400 million articles, and certainly even if you did, you wouldn't remember it all. And it's able to process that and turn that into an argument. Now, if you think about the implications of that, it can fit into almost anywhere where humans need to make decisions in something contentious, which is you have a corpus of information, work out what is relevant, present one side, present another side. And that can be useful in academia, it could be useful in medicine, it could be useful in the boardroom. All of those are clear values of what AI or project debate or the core technology behind it is able to do. And I guess there are other functions as well. People could Citizens could write in their arguments to a policy question, and it would be synthesized as these are the main concerns or big thoughts of, hu- of citizens across the country. Wide scale citizen initiatives can then exist. And there are so many implications of that 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 will have a big impact in the classroom, in the boardroom, in everyone's homes. Would I love as sure. well for it to mm-hmm. be a way people practicing debates? Absolutely. And I think maybe 10 years from now, there will be a part of all this technology which may nicely fit under that.
0: Yeah, right. And I think with that, I'll just ask you one question before Adipati can step in. I know I've been hogging the uh, question part of this conversation a bit too much. I think too used to having uh, being the sole moderator. But the question is when we talk about debating and then conceptually, uh, mm-hmm. perhaps as a broader understanding, as a segue introduction into this entire episode, what would you de- define the essential features that you've identified? perhaps on, in a broader sense uh, for a debater? What are the essential features that you would
1: suggest? Huh? Oh, God, I could talk about this question for hours. <laughs> uh, I guess I would say this, which is there are, if I look at the real power of debating, particularly when you're just starting out or the first couple of years, where I think it is the most valuable for someone to do, there are several parts of it. The first, I think, requires a bit of the context, almost just the world we're in, which is, Partially, but not entirely because of social media, we are trapped in some kinds of viewpoints. We, we think of them as echo chambers, but I think of this more broadly, which is we often just have a default belief about what is right, and that there is one side of an argument. And what is clear to me is lots of that isn't thought out. It's not that I've thought about all these questions. It's that just, this is just what I believe in because it's what people around me believe in. And you have default beliefs about what is true and your default opinions, which haven't carefully been thought about. And the most powerful part of debating for me is that you're interrogating those beliefs and you're doing so in two ways. The first is, you could find yourself in competitive debating, you get a topic, you could be on either side of it. And at which point you do need to think about what's the best case I can make for the other side? What are the best arguments I can make for the other side? I think often when you do that, you realize that no one has a monopoly over what is correct. But the second part of that, which in some ways is even more empowering, let's say the side which I believe in. Well, now I have to justify it. And I have to justify very carefully because it's going to be attacked through these various speeches and people are going to argue against it. But what you end up with then is, here is my belief and actually I can reason through it. I can come up with reasons why I believe this to be true. Um, and actually, that's not true about so many of our core beliefs. And that I find to be very powerful as the first part of debating. The second part, which is related, is it also impacts the tone which you use in a debate. And again, if we think about debates online or indeed on television, they often lack respect. They lack the idea that you have two people who could have a viewpoint. Both of you normally will come from a position of one doing what is best for society, however you define that to be. There is no one evil in those conversations. And you can almost certainly have a respectful discussion between the two, just understanding you have different viewpoints on maybe what's important, maybe what effects matter, uh, maybe just on what models of the world you believe to be true. But that's really the optimal for public discourse. And I think something which debating teachers, which is neither side is likely to be entirely correct. There are going to be arguments for one side, arguments for the other side. And just because you take a different side than me, that doesn't mean that you're immoral. It just means for whatever reason, we disagree. Mm -hmm. And that I find to be some of the things which debating teaches you to do. Now, beyond that, there are obviously skills you need, like how quickly can, are you able to construct an argument? Can you think logically, step by step? How do you present it as clearly as you can to an audience, which is for better or for worse, partially listening, partially not? But that's, that's the other element of debating. But to me, the biggest thing you get out of it is the ability to think about both sides, logically construct both sides, strengthen or weaken your opinions as a result, but you're better able to argue them and realize that people who disagree with you might have very valid views. And it's mm-hmm. not because they're immoral. It just might be that they have different opinions on certain things. Right.
0: Wonderful. Wonderful. Thank you so much for that answer. I was... I was very surprised because this is something that is genuinely lacking when we talk about the public discourse. Now with apps like Clubhouse and all of that, this is definitely something that is missing out. Um, I think with this, Adipatya has an interesting question that he wanted to ask you.
2: Yeah, uh, okay. So these are specifically my questions as a debater. So I always had these questions in mind I wanted if you, then it's great. But other than that, individuals that are at the helm of the activity or have been at the helm of the activity at some point in time to ask them these questions. So firstly, and this is something that I have experienced in general is that students from the uh, schools debating circuit are continuing to dominate the university debating space in general. Oh. So do you think that they have an unbeatable edge? Do you think this edge can be equalized at any point in time? If yes,
1: then how? Okay. That's that's a very interesting question. Let's just start with what I think is the obvious first truth about that, which is if you've been on the school's debating circuit, what that likely means is you have two extra years of debating before you get into university. And in no world is that a disadvantage in that you have done more of the activity, you've honed your skills, you've seen more debates. That's a positive uh, for you if you're coming out of school. I would add to that, that depending on who you're talking about, where you're talking about, some of these people will have had great training before. They will have had coaches who are helping them refine that process constantly. So the first part of this is you will enter as if you have a school's background as someone who is more experienced and certainly has an advantage. Now, the question of course is, is that that unbeatable? And I think the answer is clearly not. And I guess one way to look at this is if we think about speakers in the grand final of the World Universities debating championships, I would reckon that we're probably about 50-50 in terms of people with significant schools background and people without it. Now, that clearly isn't representative of everyone who does debating, but certainly says there's the ability to catch up. So what is happening during that period? And I think there are a few things. The first is that there is a big difference between schools debating and university debating. One of those differences, um, and I generalize a great amount here, but when you're at school, you're, you're 15, 16, 17, 18, um, there's still a lot of intellectual maturity which you need. And that really improves at your time in university, partially because you get older, partially because you're reading more, partially because you're in classes, mm-hmm. which are really pushing you much further than they are in school. And one way I look at that is for in different degrees, depending on the country, school often just gives you information. University gives you some information, but forces more analytical skills. So there's an intellectual maturity which comes over time. And partially, what I think lots of debaters who haven't got a lot of schools experience use is that intellectual gain, which is Mm. you're going to be less refined to begin with. That's true. You are going to have less experience to begin with. Also true. But it's worth remembering that, yeah, some of these schools' debaters are really, really smart at school, but you can be as smart as them. Um, and you're going to be becoming better over time. People mature at different intellectual levels as well and at different times as well. And that could be the first way of trying to overcome it, which is just realize, yes, you have a disadvantage, but everyone has a disadvantage compared to someone five years older, in probably one of the most important dimensions, which is your intellectual ability to grasp the activity. The second thing I would say is schools debating for better or worse has some styles, which is there's a way you're meant to talk. And we could think of this as more refined, but for me, there really isn't an optimal style of debating, that we all have different ways of speaking and effective for us. Um, If I try to copy, Someone who was very effective, who was very successful, when I started university, I would have been terrible. And indeed, I don't say that hypothetically. When I tried to do that, it was terrible. Um, I can only speak like me, and you can only really speak effectively like you. And I think one of the things which schools debaters sometimes suffer from is they've been told a model of how to do things, and even when you're coached, you're almost pushed into a model. It's very rare that a coach goes discover it for yourself. Here are some guidelines. Work it out for yourself. Well, at university, you probably don't have that level of coaching, but it's not necessarily a drawback. It does allow you to discover things yourself. And I guess the final part of this is two years, three years of a school debater prepping, definitely useful. And you do need to do some catch-up for that. And in reality, that's going to be three things. It's going to be are you willing to put in the time and the effort to go to debating tournaments? And hopefully the answer is yes, uh, particularly when they're online. So I think the barriers become much, much lower. Uh, Second, are you willing to listen to feedback from judges and see what they thought which was good, see what they thought which wasn't good? And thirdly, are you willing to be critical of yourself and work out how you need to improve with the feedback from judges helping, but also about What what wasn't I good at? What would I change next time? What do I need to read more about? And actually, those two years when you're younger mean a lot less than probably six months when you're older, because you can get so much more information. It makes so much more sense. So I guess my answer to this would be, you are disadvantaged. If Generally speaking, if an intelligent person who hasn't got any schools debating, puts in exactly the same amount of effort as someone who's got five years of schools training, you are going to be in a perpetual disadvantage. That's not really the real world. If you're willing to put in the effort, yes, you start off behind, but particularly given how people mature over time, lots of people can improve very rapidly and catch up with that gap.
2: Right. Exactly. Uh, okay. So not exactly a follow-up, but uh, idea that comes out of it is that you would realize that how competitive the sport becomes after some point in time, because like you, all the time you want to win, you want to be like at the top of the speaker taps at least. So what then happens is that because it's so competitive, it becomes unpleasant at times. For example, recently there were tensions with the 2023 WDC, pick, and it took sort of a not less turn online as well. What do you think can be done to like keep these episodes out? How we, as a debating uh, society or like as a debating space, should look at it so that these things don't get unpleasant another?
1: Yeah, in some ways, this is a very difficult question to ask, um, to ask and to answer. Which is almost just to to start with what I think the big problem here is, or at least a statement of reality, which is. Everyone wants to win. Everyone wants to be better than how they were doing before. And only a handful of people can do better than they were before, particularly at the top end, where you're trying to win. Two people will win a BP tournament. Three people will win an Asians tournament. There really aren't that many opportunities. And it is going to be competitive because this is something that everyone who does well, to different degrees, put a lot of time in, a lot of themselves into, and cares a great deal about. If you didn't, why are you spending all your weekends involved in debating? And a natural part of that, just like in any sport, is going to be competition. It is that we are going to be competitive, and we are going to care a great deal. And I don't think you can move away from that, and that the reality is that is going to create some degree of at some, at some degree of unpleasantness. Now, what exactly that means can change from case to case. It could just be you don't like the very competitive environment. It could be that people aren't helping each other. It could be that they're actively harmful to each other. It's a pretty wide spectrum, but you'll see at least some of that at almost any major tournament. Now, how do you combat that? And I think to begin with, I don't think you can entirely combat that. I think that part of it is just going to be natural within the activity. And, but once you step away from debating, it just seems so ridiculous. that it. How did that mean so much to me? Why was I that awful to, the, to these people? And it would be nice to say, you can just get perspective. Um, you should just think about this as one of the other things you do. And, and we should, but we don't. Um, so that never quite works in the way we want it to. We can try and go, this is one of 10 things which I do. Um, yes, it's important to me now, but it isn't necessarily that important. But that doesn't really work as a strategy. I think, to me, potentially the best way of trying to minimize the consequences of the competitive mentality, given you can't really get rid of the competitive mentality, is to think from your own perspective, what am I trying to get out of this? And part of it is going to be right up until you're doing those last tournaments, it's about me becoming better. And me becoming better isn't inconsistent with you becoming better. And indeed, listening to you, seeing what you did well and what you did badly, talking to you nicely, being friends, and this sounds so utilitarian when it comes to the purpose of friends, but obviously it's an element of it, not all of it, does give you ways of becoming better. Being nice to people is a way of helping yourself become better at this activity. And if you just then look at it from a competitive lens, it's not that if, I, if you win, I lose, it's that You're winning. What did I learn from it? So I don't need to look at every piece of that to be antagonistic. It's all an opportunity for me to improve as well. And then, of course, when you actually speak to people, when you talk to them, when you spend time with them, they are normally very nice people and you are actually can easily become friends with them. But that to me is probably the mentality aspect which we can deal with. On an institutional level, I think There's very little people can do institutionally. We love the idea that, you know, we could be nice to each other. Let's have all these equity announcements. And they work at the edges. They're not going to work for marshalling everyday behavior and attitudes. So I think it's just partially that people need to have the right attitude. And that attitude could be that this isn't that important. Or it could be, this is really important, but you doing well teaches me something Us being friends teaches me something. Again, that is the most cynical way of putting it. And obviously, in reality, things aren't quite that simple. But I do think that is probably the right mentality to reduce Mm. the feeling of toxicity, which comes Mm. as a result.
0: Right, right. I think this is one of the best uh, possible segments where we understand naturally how it comes to the professionals. And uh, with that, I think it's really important that I ask you a very naive question. And I understand that it's quite difficult to sum everything up about debating in just one episode. It takes uh, perhaps a lot of practice and more than that, a study that will definitely range more than just one episode. But from your very rich experience, and when I talk about your experience, there are a lot of things that must have contributed in you becoming one of the best debaters right now. And uh, with that, was there any altering moment, perhaps in the preparation strategy or something that you discovered? Or if 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 you were to compile a list of suggestions, perhaps in five, six things that you could suggest the debaters, that these are the things that have changed my way, how I prepare, how I use my preparation time, how I go about case construction or perhaps think about the rebuttals or anything else. What would those five,
1: six things be? I'll start with a brief story uh, before I did my first World Championships, which is I just started my master's degree at Cambridge, and I'd been lucky enough to be selected as part of Cambridge C on the Cambridge World Squad. Um, And my partner and I, Richard Lau, went to several tournaments. So we went to, I think, five different tournaments before the World Championships, and we reached the elimination rounds of one of them. The other four we bombed at to different degrees. We definitely didn't do well at any of them. Uh, two weeks before the World Championships is the Birmingham IV, which isn't a huge IV, but it's a mid-sized IV uh, competition within the UK. And I think we finished about midway down the team tab and midway, and both of us midway down the speaker tab. So there's many speakers above us that were below us. And this was certainly a very difficult experience for me because... I was kind of good, but just wasn't doing well. And and a friend of mine told me at the time, uh, we were sitting in Cambridge, he said, look, it's that every time you're in a room, you're trying to prove that you're smarter than everyone else in it. But that's not how you win debates. You win debates because you are thinking about the issues and what you need to do to win that debate. And that to me was a bit of a revelation, which is, I don't need to say smart things necessarily. I just need to ask myself, what do I need to prove to win this debate? What is the purpose of each argument I'm making? And what that meant is I went slowly from thinking about debating as an argument game, which is you have an argument, I have an argument, which one wins? Okay, I've got all this clever stuff to say behind this. I win that argument. to actually a logic game. And one way I formulate it now is what is every team trying to do in a debate? Well, you're mm-hmm. trying to show that on balance, your side of the debate is correct. Well, what does that mean? It means you can lose arguments. Indeed, in any relatively balanced uh, debate, you're going to lose arguments. All I need to show is the arguments I win are more important than the arguments I lose. And you don't need to have the most elaborate arguments. The very elaborate argument, even if you lose it, or even if you win it, may not impact at the end of the day whether on balances is a good idea. Or a bad idea. And I'm not even sure when I entirely internalized that. Um, And maybe this is just looking back and thinking I internalized it much earlier than I did. But from the Birmingham IV to three weeks later at Cork Worlds, which would be 2008, 2009, we went from being middle of the tab at Cork Worlds to breaking third, or being the third best team after the elimination rounds at the World Championships. And from being the 35th best speaker at the Birmingham IV for, I was say, 10th and my partner was, I like think, the 12th best speaker at the World Championships. I think that was the biggest change which happened to me, which is understanding it's not about just having the most intellectually sophisticated and interesting arguments you could have made. It is thinking about debates of, on balance, what do I actually need to prove? So,
0: right. for
1: me, that's the first and biggest lesson. The second is something which I think i come to more naturally over time, and I would probably disavow for years, even though I probably didn't quite act this way, which is the importance of style. And I just want to be very clear what I mean by this, because I think it is a contentious issue. Uh, Let's realize, irrespective of what audience we're speaking in front of, on a debating perspective, on a presentation perspective, any perspective, there is only a limit to how much anyone is going to listen and take in to what you're saying. You would hope from when it's a competitive debate, there is going to be more of it, because that's the role of the judge and they're used to it. But let's not, let's, let's not pretend any judge is going to get 100% of what I say, and 100% of what I say is even going to be easily understood by a judge. You'll be talking too fast. You'll be slurring your words. You won't be explaining the concept as clearly to someone else as it is in your head, and What has struck me over time is the most powerful tool you can have is thinking about things as clearly as you can, which is how would I present this idea in a way that almost anyone could understand me? And that's mainly about your choice of language, which is how can you make it so obvious what you are saying that no one even partially listening can miss it? And it's partially when are you changing your tone? when are you trying to emphasize a certain section of your speech over another section of your speech? And that is actually really powerful if you just think about the psychology of judges and something which we underplay. And I understand why we underplay because debating is primarily a logic and argument game. But in the end, the other element of it is this is in spoken form, not written form. And there are impacts that has, which includes that we have to think about how we say something for people to understand what we're saying. And a follow on from that is it's not just how we say to make sure they understand it, but it's how much of an effect they think it has. So to give a straightforward example, if you think about any policy and one team can say, this policy is bad because it will lead to a degradation of infrastructure. Okay, Um, alternatively, this policy Leads to overcrowded schools where people are less likely to go because they're not going to learn anything. It is when you have hospitals which don't have essential supplies and people are dying on the streets. It's when it's going to take you five hours to get from your home to work. Now, those things are logically the exact same, but they're not actually the exact same when you think about what it seems to mean. And those are the two elements of style, which I think I've come to as really very valuable. Or probably underplayed in the way we'd have thought about debating beforehand. The final thing I would say, um, which had a big impact on me, was active reading, which is lots of debaters read, but what do you do with that reading? And the way I like thinking about it is, there are models of the way the world works. Well, now I'm reading a little bit. How does it fit within my model? If it doesn't fit within my model, What's wrong about the way I'm thinking about the world for this piece of information? And what I think you end up with is I'm constantly reading with the idea, not of just a story about how something worked in one case, but what can that tell me more generally about how the world works, a macro phenomenon or a micro phenomenon? What don't I understand about it? What are they trying to tell me? What do I need to change about the models which I currently have? And to me, that's more active reading which is not reading for facts and information. You definitely want that as well. But it's reading to undercover more general rules about how the world is working on a micro or macro level. Yeah, wonderful.
2: Adi. yep. Uh, so uh, just a segue. So missing, missing the breaks uh, are a very unpleasant experience. But if you're given a choice to miss a break on speaks or
1: missing a break on points, what would you choose? Oof. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I don't have strong preferences there at all, but I guess this is the one way we'll look at it, which is it really depends about what happened before, which is do I think that I have done relatively well at this tournament and become unlucky, or do I think that I have done badly at this tournament and haven't been unlucky, but I just didn't deserve to break? And neither one of those metrics is perfect on that side. The closer one is probably uh, speaks. Now, speaks are mu- probably more random. Uh, indeed, they are definitely more random than team points. But if you're constantly doing well on speaks, it probably says that you've been speaking pretty well, but then you lost a round. Maybe that's a close round. Or you weren't quite at your best in this round, but that's fine as well, Because uh, but other teams might have been slightly better. I'm more happy with that kind of conclusion. now. I don't like the framing of the question because I don't think that is quite proxy by the idea of speaks or team points. Um, but to the degree it is, it would be that when you don't break on speaks, uh, is that that you were just lucky that you were in relatively easy rounds? You weren't speaking very well or you were in rounds where other teams spoke badly. Therefore, you got the team points plausibly. That, that is something which can happen, uh, notwithstanding all the randomness which goes into it. Or the other side, which is you get all the speaks, you do really well through the tournament, and you came come fourth in a round uh, because it was a very good round, and you underperformed in that one round. I would be slightly happy in that position because I think that probably says more that there is there's progress which I've made. So that's probably the way we look at it, but with very imperfect proxies here.
2: Okay, uh, so in general, what I've seen is all debaters have their favorite and analogies. Or intuition pumps in, like that they use quite often. Uh, do you think you have one? And if yes, what is that, that you want to share?
1: I don't actually know if I have one. And what, <laughs> Or maybe phrased differently, I might have hundreds uh, rather than just one. Uh, because different things will work in different contexts. I've become so used to using them over time, which is in reality, I'd be debating very constantly from about 2008 to about 2013, and then again from about 2016 to 2018. So, you know, there's probably a thousand debates um, plus in that. But a few which I quite like now, um, which I think are quite illustrative, um, one which I find to be very useful um, is we have so many debates about the state. Well, what is the state? Uh, The state is a bunch of men, usually men, who tell you through threat of force what you are or are not allowed to do. It's very useful because you immediately disaggregate what this notion of the state is from abstract entity of all power to a bunch of people who are telling you with a bunch of guns what you can and cannot do. I always find that to be a very useful phrase. Everything else, I think, becomes very debate dependent Uh, philosophically, what exactly you want to do. But my go-to here is always similar to what I said about style, which is what is the most clear expression which everyone will understand immediately as to what I want to say? So other ones which I've used, for instance. um, If you want to look, for instance, at how society has determined the success of even some of the richest individuals and some of the most brilliant people you would know, try something along these lines. How, how successful would Warren Buffett have been if he had been born to a poor family in rural Yemen? And there is only one answer to that, probably. But I think it immediately gets you to the idea that where we were born really matters, not just because of the circumstances, educationally we were in, but the nature of the society we were in, what that society values. How would he have done in a society which valued being a farmer and physical labor over the ability to pick uh, the value of companies and or equities. I think it's things like that, but they all depend on the context.
2: One of your analogies that I love the most, and I still sometimes use it in crowds as well, is the fact that when you describe how uh, cars kill more people than guns in general, and it's just the individual's choice to still go and sit in the car and drive to office every day rather than just fighting with guns. I think I like that the most, uh, which is why I've used it sometimes as well. Sorry for stealing analogies.
1: No, I, I, think, I think that's always a very useful word to use. <laughs> Actually, I think it's what I spoke about only a couple of days ago, which is when are you taking a greater risk? Um, walking around. <laughs> I mean, different degrees of plausibility here, but every single day, the vast majority of us take an activity which has very little upside going to the supermarket we could walk to, but a big, low probability downside, the idea of us dying. Surely, avoiding debt is not and cannot be our overriding concern.
0: Yeah, right. And I think there was an interesting story also that Adi was telling me. And I think Adi can, we were sort of learning more and more about your experiences and how wonderful it has become. There's an animal, uh, a creature named after you in one of the debates. I think Adi was telling me about uh, Adi, if you could tell me that story. Yeah, yeah. That's a very
2: famous story about uh, WDC Chennai 20, <laughs> where a bat was named. Pat Harish. His name is Harish Batraj.
0: So, so please, please. are you, are you aware of the story? And uh, like how did that happen?
1: <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, yeah. Uh, the, the, you are asking for a very long story here. Uh, here's the, here's a the brief version. That in 2014, uh, 2013, 2014, December 2013, early 2014, the World Championships were held in Chennai in India at Rajalakshmi Engineering College. Um, I was one of the chief adjudicators of the tournament. I had been involved in various forms about the year and a half before. Now, a lot had happened in that year and a half, including but not limited to that the administration of REC had replaced the person who we were constantly in communication with and who seemed to be in charge of the tournament with someone else. This wasn't really known to us, that the organizers, uh, the administrators, not the student organizers who were always great and worked really hard, kept changing their priorities. And they would. And indeed, uh, when we were to ask them, is something done Do you does this make sense? they would say yes, but what they really meant is they'd heard us and they would make their own determinations. Now one of the consequences of all of that was the tournament was go- was going to be very badly run, that things were just falling apart on campus that they had gone from the year before giving us a plan of rebuilding the auditorium to now not and it's basically just a gymnasium. Now, This didn't make it the easiest world championships to run by any stretch of the imagination. And one thing which happened, which I'm always going to remember, is the opening ceremony. Um, The head of the college comes up to me and says, yeah, for budgetary reasons, we don't think we should have projectors. Now, one of the difficulties is you have something like 360 teams. How are you going to tell them what room they're going to be in if we don't have projectors? And it took about 30 minutes of arguing that having screens and projectors is non-negotiable because there is no other way of doing this. But to get to the bat story, there then when we are in the auditorium, a bunch of bats start flying around, which just seemed to be a great image of what the entire tournament was. And I think there was then a one of them was caught or fell to the ground, and they then had a raffle of who exactly would get to be the back. And this was the conclusion. But I think it was a nice encapsulation of the difficulties which a tournament had. <laughs>
0: right. I mean, this this has to be the most fascinating story that I've heard about anything and sort of very representative of how most of the institutions work in India. I think yes. Adipati more or less has a better experience of organizing competitions for debates. And yeah. I think he has also experienced, perhaps not as worse, but something similar. Have you, Adi?
2: Yeah. Experienced a lot of things, budgets not getting passed. IEA budget is a thing nowadays. So yeah. they just aren't able to come to the facts that we are paying students to become judges. And they're just like, why are you paying students? I think it's very difficult to explain this to an administrator or an
1: IEA officer. Yeah. 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 We ran into lots of problems related to that. The administration was happy to pay judges, but pay them like 30% less than they'd be promised it created many many issues and i guess to me it was the encapsulation of everything which is worst about worst about indian business and indian academic institutions all at once and while i think there've been other tournaments which will have been badly run at many of them uh, none of them had the scale which is what i think made it particularly bad and actually that just makes it higher profile but also scale makes all these problems worse right but
0: one thing that I'm really grateful for, and uh, with all the caveat, this is coming from a position of privilege. I get to stay back at home and I don't have to go out for uh, this. So I feel that the COVID period, this one uh, last one and a half years has somehow given us all the students as one or people who are aspiring mm-hmm. uh, to perhaps uh, exploit this world of debating. A uh, whole new modus of, of, of uh, perhaps debating and engaging with uh, teams which are even cross-border through various online platforms. And quite recently, there is one that is polemics.io, which I um, I think is a wonderful, wonderful platform. And uh, Adi also introduced me to it. And I think uh, slowly all these, the, the polemics itself is becoming such an incredible space for debating. And uh, what is your association here? And uh, how is it like, how did this idea
1: really uh, come about? And what exactly is it trying to create? Right. Um, so, what po- so, Polemics, uh, which is available in the App Store, Google Play, what it is, is a platform for individuals to discuss opinions. What makes it different than other social media platforms is you will see a speech for a topic and a speech against the topic, one after the other. And the first thing this is trying to break down is the idea that we only really see one side, or when we see the other side, it's a caricature rather than a real representation of what people think. And I guess part of our belief is what what many people want is to see lots of different sides of an argument all in one place, but where does anyone actually go to do that? Um, And that's not even a hypothetical question. It's like, literally, where do you go to do that? Um, That's not true about most of the mainstream media. Um, It's not true about the news media where you will have panel discussions, but how many of them are actually careful and respectful? So that's the first part of it. The second part of it is how to create respectful discussion online. And I think to me, one of the big issues when we look at social media is the way in which we talk loses any idea of perspective or respect. And I think there are two reasons for this. Write a offensive or pithy comment on Facebook. How many likes will you get? Write four paragraphs which are carefully reasoned, how many likes you will, will you get? On average, the first one does so much better than the second. So how do you create an idea of respect? Well, our bet here was that what people are going to be, what their content's gonna be prioritized on is how many people you're, who find your argument convincing and how many people who aren't convinced but think you have a point or think you've made the argument well, which is just a different kind of feedback mechanism, which is an attempt to get this content prioritized involves you doing something different than you would otherwise. And the third part of the format is it's short. And this is a drawback. The speeches are 30 seconds in length, which is you cannot do things in a lot of detail in 30 seconds. For better or for worse, that is actually, particularly in the age we're in right now, what most people's attention span probably is. Not many people are going to listen for longer than 30 seconds. So you have to be able to play into that. I think the reality is, if you're a politician nowadays, you need to be able to get your argument across and convince someone in 30 seconds, because we don't have a great deal of time beyond that. But hopefully, all that serves as a gateway for people want to read more about this person and their opinions, um, a gateway for them to both find out what they care about, and maybe you care about it enough to read more about it. And all that is part of the architecture of polemics. My role in it's been twofold, which is polemics is backed by some very powerful people, which includes the global head of the New York Times, Steve Dunbar Johnson, um, and uh, President Macron of France's former chief advisor, so Ishmael Emelian, both of whom I think have very similar vision but from slightly different directions, which is Ishmael will say that look at Europe now, that we need people to foster seeing all sides of debate, we don't think that many of them will change their mind, but just the humanization of all elements of it matters so much. It's that moderation and sympathy and empathy for the other side of a political debate that we've lost. And Stephen will say, look, we're so trapped in our echo chambers, we need to be able to see more high-quality views, particularly from young people, of both sides. So I sit on the board with them and several other people. My role here is just to think about it from a debating side. Is this providing enough of a forum for discussion? At what point do we think that we are straying too much from actually allowing people to have high quality debate given the limitations of time? So I'm advising on that side on what we think optimal content is going to be, how we get people to respond um, in a respectful way. And I think over time, we're now two and a half months into the launch of the platform. how some of those problems exist as we scale them up more and more. But it's been a really interesting part of what I've been doing over the last few months and probably hopefully for quite a while to come, particularly as we get more and more really interesting Mm -hmm. figures who are on the app. We've already had the president of human rights watch, watch some academics, um, and this seems to be continuing. So we have a lot of hope that it can at least have some good in the space of internet discussion in debating, but also outside of debating as well.
0: Right. And this is absolutely revolutionary, especially how you described it. The traditional forms of debate that we all are familiar with, perhaps maybe Facebook, Twitter or anywhere else for that matter, is not a debate by any stretch of imagination is not a debate. It's uh, usually a berating sense of uh, comedy that's just happening and which wiser of the people choose to enjoy instead of participate. So I think this is one of the most interesting platforms that I've, um, generally, I think all the viewers of this podcast, uh, the link to the same is in the description, so everyone please do check it out. Before we uh, really conclude this conversation and I press uh, the stop record button, there is something that I think is very exciting
1: for everyone who's watching this episode. Say so yeah, over to you, Harish. Yeah, so for The polemics is still invite only before we start growing more. But I would love you all to be joining the app. Tell us what you think. And to do so, you need an invitation code, which Mm -hmm. you can use HN007. Unsurprisingly, I chose that code myself. (laughs) Perfect. Perfect. Now, uh,
0: I know we have taken a lot of your time and we have to wrap this conversation up, but uh, it's been wonderful. Uh, Before we wrap this up, I think it's important to ask you, do you have any closing
1: remarks for the viewers who are watching this conversation? There's there's always a lot to say. What what I'll say is this. Um, I hope more and more of you uh, get involved in debating. I think there's just so much power you can get from it. Um, And we're at a unique period, which hopefully will last, at least in some form, where debating is more accessible than ever has been before. But the biggest takeaway from all that time you can spend debating isn't about this narrow activity. It isn't just about competitive success. It is realizing how powerful it can be when you look at it the right way. When I think about myself, the skills I learned from debating aren't just about debating. It's how I give a presentation. It's how I'll write an essay. It is what I will say to a client in in environments. I think it's all about realizing Winning is great. We, we all love the idea of winning, but it's not really the main thing here, uh, particularly when you get out of university, you do less debating, you can realize that maybe you didn't enjoy every moment of it. Maybe there are times you were going to be really stressed. You found it to be toxic, and we all understand that. But don't forget all the things which you will have, it will give you and probably has already given you, your ability to be cleaner and clearer about what you say, your ability to think logically, um, and in a more structured way. And your ability, above all else, to start realizing how complicated the world is, that no one has an entire monopoly over what is right, and hopefully interrogate your own opinions, uh, think more deeply about them. I think those are all the things we get out of debating more than just think about it as a competitive activity. Right. Perfect. I think this is by far one of the finest conversations I've
0: had on this podcast. Out of all those 88 episodes that I've done, this is by far the most engaging and enjoyable one. I think Adipatyah also had a wonderful time here. Yeah, yeah.
1: It was just a pleasure talking to you. It's it's my pleasure entirely. And I hope, particularly this time for all all of us, but different degrees, that everyone is safe and their families are doing better.
0: And yes, and we hope the same for you as well. I mean, sure, yeah. the times are very testing on everyone's. Right. Yeah, Yeah. not the best time in the world. <laughs> yeah. Perfect. All right. Uh, this was wonderful. Thank you so much for taking time off your busy schedule, sitting down with us and having this conversation. I'm sure everyone who watches this conversation will draw so much inspiration. I think number one is I generally want to get back to debating Adipata. This is one thing that I want to do is start debating again and uh, purposefully work on everything that you've talked about and read more and more about everything that you're working on, I think everyone can draw the inspiration out of it. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for your time. It was my pleasure. And hopefully I'll talk to you again at some point. Absolutely. Thank you.